Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is series four, episode eight, On the Door. Years ago, I was in a cafe with some friends. It was a cold spring day. Around lunchtime, the sky was empty and clear. It was giving that sort of light that you only get in that part of the world that time of the year. It's with some friends, including a couple of Greek scientists I didn't know so well. And the conversation turned to history, as it seems to surprisingly often, at least when I'm around. I mean, I'm not there when I'm not around, so I don't know what happens. We got talking about the Battle of Marathon. This big fight between the Persian Empire and the Greeks, with the might of the Persian Empire crushing down on Greece, and the plucky Greek army rushing towards them in phalanx formation. With a combination of technology and timing and landscape, and no small amount of grit and courage, the Greek army won. The great Persian Empire was shamed and defeated their attempt to conquer the Greek world in tatters. Or so goes the story. I love Persian history. I love Persian history almost as much as I love Indian history. And I'm a bit of a mule-headed person. So the inevitable happened. I opened my mouth and I started to talk. I was going to say that the Persians weren't really there to conquer Greece, that they just wanted to teach the Greeks a lesson for some earlier fault, and that, from the Persian point of view, the whole expedition was basically a success. It wasn't that they were shamed and defeated at all. That's what I was going to say to those two new Greek friends, and I got halfway through the first sentence when I felt a sharp pain. I looked down my wife was grabbing my knee fiercely. She knew I was heading into a rant, and she knew that the Greeks were not going to take it well. And she was right, because on the other side of the table, I looked up and I saw two burly Greek physicists whose faces were already darkening in anticipation. Fortunately, the conversation moved on to other matters, and we all had a lovely, lazy spring afternoon. It's a bit of a self-indulgent story. What's the point? The point is this. I can be an ass. I can get wrapped up in historical nuances and lose sight of the way that it affects the people I'm talking to. I'm pretty sure it happens in this podcast. And it might be about to happen again. We've already been through some tricky moments together on this podcast. Talking about coming of Muslims to India, or that entire series when a great empire based in India is forgotten just because it started outside of India, and then there was that episode on caste in Mauryan India. Still getting hate mail about that one. Actually, it's probably a bad idea to list all of the low moments. But anyway, the next two episodes will cover topics that are trickier than any of the ones we've talked about so far. In the next episode, we'll talk about the Arab invasions, the early ones. In this episode, the Rajputs come onto the scene. 
The Rajputs are a proud group of people with a lot to be proud of. For anyone not steeped in the culture, the name Rajput brings to mind a vision. A man with a twirled moustache and an ornate turban. Beneath him, a horse. In his hand, a heavy kanda sword. And in his eyes, the reflection of his enemies. Rajputs like him held back the invading Arab hordes. They were the heroes who defended Hindu India for centuries. The Rajput warrior sits at the start of the medieval age, before the Islamic rulers swamp India. He's an earlier, more wily version of the medieval knight. In this episode, we introduced the earliest of the Rajput clans, which some have called the greatest. They're called the Pratiharas. They founded a kingdom in the deserts of Rajasthan and beat back the Arab invaders. In fact, they kept them out for more than 300 years. And there's a lot of truth to our vision, our, our picture of a Rajput warrior. The Pratiharas did beat back the Arab invaders, who called them the enemy of Islam. The Pratiharas doubtless rode horses, used swords, and even had moustaches, and surely very many of them were brave. But like all visions, all dreams of real events, we've got to check to see if the vision is warped by what's going on in our own lives, in our own day. So let's get the most unpopular things to say out of the way at the start. First, these Pratiharas didn't think of themselves as Rajputs. Like I said, nowadays we tend to think of them as the, the earliest Rajputs, and the descendants of the Pratiharas, the Parihas, are still very much around in India today, and very much Rajputs. But it just wasn't the way back then when the Pratiharas started out. Because the very idea of Rajput, as we mean it, came much later came around the 12th century most likely. Back when the Pratiharas are founding their kingdoms in the 6th century, maybe the word Rajput was around, it might be used occasionally, but it wasn't used as the name of a group of people, or an ethnicity, or a jati, a caste, any such thing. Rajput literally means son of a king. And before the 12th century, the word was used to refer to chiefs who ruled a few villages, small kings. A bit after that, closer to the 12th century, it was used to refer to relatively small-time officials or, or local bigwigs. And it wasn't just that the word Rajput wasn't used back then like it is today. There was no word for the idea that we have of Rajput now back then. The Pratiharas didn't see themselves as one and the same group with the other groups we now call Rajputs. At least, there's no sign of this in their early inscriptions. So far as we can tell, from the contemporary sources, there was no identity tying together the peoples we now know as the early Rajputs. Second, it's true that the Pratiharas fought against the Arabs. It's true that they saw the Arabs as a great threat and that they defeated them and held them back. Actually, though, the Pratiharas spent relatively little time and energy fighting the Arab invaders. 
The Arab invasion was very serious, but it went anyway, lost a, a lot of its momentum, mostly due to changes in the Arab heartlands outside of India, far to the west. The Pratihara's army spent more of their time elsewhere, fighting Hindu and Buddhist kingdoms, especially after the time of the early Pratihara kingdoms. That's the, that's the case. Now, these two facts don't fit the story of the early Rajputs as I learned it as a kid, but they are, so far as I know, not questioned by any major academic historian in India today, for the good reason that the evidence for them is just very strong indeed. The Pratiharas are a great dynasty. They form an empire, they conquer Kanauj, and, and there are lots of great characters down that line. We're going to be spending the rest of season of the season getting to know them. And doubtless, I'll get in the way of telling their story. I'll screw it up and get something wrong. I hope you can forgive those missteps and enjoy the journey because it's wonderful. Anyway, that's enough caveats and apologies. Ready? Let's go meet the Pratiharas. The Pratiharas, oldest of the Rajput clans. But where did they come from? According to a well-known answer, the Pratiharas are Agnikula, born from fire. Literally. The story goes that the warrior caste, the, the Kshatriyavana, was destroyed. Rama with an axe destroyed them when they started to misbehave and oppress people in the world. But after that, with all of the warriors of society gone, things started to spiral down. Demons started to torment people, started to run the place, started to just cause mayhem. So the sages came up with a plan. They gathered together on a rock that rises in southern Rajasthan, called Mount Abu. And there they constructed a sacrificial fire and started a ceremony. But the demons running amok must have heard because they came along to disrupt proceedings. They threw things into the sacrificial fire. Trash, piss, blood, flesh. And the fire was made impure. The ceremony was ruined. The sages weren't beaten though. They dug out a new fire and they started chanting new hymns. And from the fire emerged a great warrior called Pratihara, which means doorkeeper. The sages instructed him to guard the road up Mount Abu. After him, three more warriors emerged from the fire. And together the warriors routed the demons. And they went on to find, to found four new lines of Kshatriyas, the four fire-born Rajput lines. The oldest of which, the first out of the fire, were the Pratiharas. There are quite a few versions of that story, and each version's a little bit different in interesting ways. Some of the early ones have one of the four fireborn warriors as the victor, and the other three not really doing the work. Those versions are told by the descendants of that victorious warrior, as you might have guessed. These stories, they're not as old as the Pratiharas, most likely. 
but they are pretty old. First written down perhaps in the 16th century, some people say, others the 12th century. A few historians go a bit earlier than that, but at least it was hundreds of years after the Pratiharas came onto the scene. If you'd asked someone in the Pratihara Empire where they'd come from, you'd have probably got a different story. It's a story from the final chapter of Almaki's Ramayana. The chapter's called the Uttarakhanda, which means something like final chapter in this context, but in the poetic sense of the term. So epilogue, conclusion, ending, the answer to your questions. This is the kanda, the, the chapter where Rama, an incarnation of God, beheads someone for performing austerities whilst being low caste. Although that passage seems to most historians to be a later edition. Most famously, this is the chapter where Rama exiles his wife Sita. In the previous parts of the book, Sita gets kidnapped. Rama goes to rescue her and brings her back home. And in this final chapter, the people of their homeland start to gossip about her. She was kidnapped by Ravana. Who knows what she got up to when she was with him? This troubled Rama and well, he had just condemned someone to exile for exactly this sort of thing. He felt that he couldn't hold himself to any lower standard, so he exiled his wife Sita. A bit further down the story, she gets swallowed up by the earth. Medieval and ancient Indians found this final chapter puzzling. Take one of the great 8th century poets, Bhavubhati. We met him actually a few episodes ago. He was that Sanskritist at Yashovarman's court, rival to the Prakrit author Vakpati. Points to you if you remember that. Anyway, Bhavubhati wrote a play recreating the last chapter of the Ramayana. And in it, the story of Sita and Rama ends quite differently. Ravubhati is clearly wrestling with this stuff, and he's expecting the audience to wrestle with it too, trying to make sense of why God would act in this way. And by the way, that's not some snide dig at the Ramayana, which I love. The truth, whatever it is, is going to surprise us. We're going to struggle to make sense of it. If you find something that says only things that are easy for you to believe, it's almost certainly not the truth. The struggle is a good sign. How to resolve the struggle, I don't know. That's something for you to work out. Anyway, in this rather challenging final chapter, there's another story that's pretty overlooked nowadays. And in this story, the god Yama comes to meet with King Rama. He has something important to say, something that can only be said in private. So he says to Rama, look, we've got to go inside and no one's allowed to interrupt us on pain of death. And Rama says, fair enough. And he asks his brother, Lakshmana, to guard the door and make sure no one comes in and loses their life. So Lakshmana takes up his role as doorkeeper and Rama and Yama go in for their conversation. But as they're talking inside, a sage comes and demands an audience with Rama. Lakshmana is very polite to him, shows him all due deference, but says, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to wait. He's busy. 
But the sage was not in a waiting mood, and he threatened to curse the whole city if he's not allowed in to see Rama. This puts Lakshmana in a really tight spot. The whole of his city is about to get cursed unless he does something now. So he takes a fateful step inside. He interrupts the conversation and he lets Rama know that the sage has come to see him. He gives up his life to save his own city. After all the meetings are concluded, he goes to the banks of the river Saryu and there he dies. This story's got a bit of the same sort of struggle that others in the others in the same chapter do. But there's something that's really easy to admire about Lakshmana here. And the Pratiharas certainly admired it. Indeed, they claim to be descended from Lakshmana. Pratihara, remember, means doorkeeper, the very job that cost Lakshmana his life. The mystery of the origins of the Pratiharas is part of a bigger mystery. Those Rajputs, where did they come from? And an awful lot has been written about this. I mean, a lot. I mean, ancient and medieval Indian historians spend plenty of energy on working out the origins of various different groups. But with the Rajputs, they've really gone to town. You can get almost halfway through a book on the Pratiharas before anything else is even mentioned. You can find whole blogs on the internet devoted to arguing for one answer about where the Rajputs came from. And you can find a lot of angry, indignant arguments and a lot of careful, thoughtful arguments which go into painstaking detail. If that's your thing, you can spend weeks reading this stuff. I've updated the website with references... Yeah, the website's finally back up to date with a whole new trendy appearance. Maybe not trendy, but at least there are reading suggestions now for all seasons. But on the other hand, if reading through a lot of arguments about the origins of the Rajputs is not your thing, not to worry. Because if you step back from the detail of the arguments, you can start to see a reasonably clear picture. Pretty nearly... Everyone agrees that the Pratiharas were almost unknown during the ancient period, and that around the time that the Gupta Empire collapses, the Pratiharas and the Rajputs come to prominence in West India. Beyond that, there are only three major views of where the Pratiharas came from, and each of the major views is wrapped up in a way of telling the story of India in general. According to the old colonial historians, the Pratiharas and other Rajputs were outsiders. They were Central Asians. When the White Huns came rushing into India, the Pratiharas and the other Rajputs came in behind them. The Huns carried on moving through West India to the heartlands of the Gupta Empire, but the Pratiharas settled down in West India. The evidence for this out-of-India story it's pretty thin. There's the fact that the coins like the ones the Huns used were used in that part of India for a while. There's the fact that there's quite a few places across North and West India 
with names connected to the Gurjaras. The Gurjaras might be another name for the Pratiharas, more of them in a bit. And there's the fact that the area was influenced by Persian culture, clothing, decoration, and religion. Plenty of people in this area are worshipping the sun, taking part in practices which seems to have been heavily influenced by Persian ideas. That's not really specific to the Pratiharas or the Rajputs, and there's not really much evidence that is. Pretty much all the evidence we've got that I've listed just now. So this Rajputs as Outsiders story doesn't have much evidence, but it does fit rather suspiciously well with a bigger story these colonial historians wanted to tell. They wanted to talk about how the great Sanskrit culture of classical ancient India was lost, how it was destroyed by barbarians, replaced by medieval Indian ideas which were inferior. And this story of the lost grandeur of ancient India itself fits rather nicely into a common justification for colonialism. To put the justification bluntly, they argued that although ancient Indian culture was great, it had become so twisted in the time of modern India that modern Indian culture stunts people's personal growth so much so that they're like children and they need the help of adult Europeans to grow up. That really is the argument of colonialists such as John Stuart Mill. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, Hopefully it's obvious, but just for the record, that's an arrogant, ill-informed, destructive piece of nonsense. The second answer to the question where the Rajputs came from comes from the nationalist historians. These are the guys who are writing in the run-up to independence of India and afterwards. They don't have much time for the old colonial version of the origin of the Rajputs, which, quite rightly, I think, they understood as guesswork guided more by ideological necessity than an interest in historical truth. Instead, the nationalist historians argued that people like the Pratiharas had a solid ancestry. According to this story, the Pratiharas and other early Rajputs were well-established but little-known groups. And when the Huns crushed into India and knocked down the Gupta Empire, the Pratiharas and the Rajputs stepped into the gap. They were just minor dynasties who took a step forward. And they were still in that gap when the next round of outsiders came to invade India, the Arab forces. The Rajputs kept them back. These Rajputs then, and the Pratiharas included, were sons of the soil, defending their homeland. That's a very coarse version of what the nationalist historians generally thought, but it gives the rough picture. And this wasn't just the nationalist historian's answer. The idea was much older. In fact, this is the oldest of the answers to the where did the Rajputs come from question. After all, think of those early stories of the fireborn Rajputs the ones about the fire pit and the four warriors coming out we just covered, those stories are giving exactly this answer. After the old Kshatriyas had been killed, the Rajputs come onto the scene, the Kshatriya Vana brought back to defend the homeland. The third answer to the question where the Rajputs came from has come to the fore a bit more recently. And because it's more recent, 
it's a bit harder to pin it down. Very roughly, though, the idea is that the Pratiharas and the other Rajputs started out as mostly a, a pastoral people, herders. We might be able to trace the background of the Pratiharas even more precisely than that to the Gujara people. The Gujara people were pastoralists. They gave their name to the ancient area of Gujara Desh. And it might be that their modern-day descendants are the Gujars, the people who gave their name to the modern Indian state of Gujarat, and who are still very much around today. There's a reasonably strong case that the Gujaras and the Pratiharas are exactly the same people, two names for the same group. Some inscriptions seem to refer to the Pratiharas as Gujaras. And the Gujaras were certainly an important group ruling a kingdom in West India at the time, just like the Pratiharas, in roughly the same place. But there's also a reasonable case to be made that the two are different groups. Those modern-day descendants of the Gujaras don't really have any traditional stories that link them back to the Pratihara Empire. And it might be that actually some Pratiharas made alliances with Gujaras, but not all Pratiharas, or it might be that Gujara became a name for anyone living or ruling in that area, so it was okay to call the Pratiharas Gujaras, but they weren't really linked with the Gujars. It all gets very muddy here. I think that the balance of evidence leans slightly towards the Pratiharas being the Gujars and the Gujars originally being pastoralists and maybe a few of them farmers as they are today. I'll be telling the story that way. So where the original sources talk about Gujars, I'll assume that they're talking about the Pratiharas. And that's not an outlandish view. Some good historians take that view too. But all the views I've mentioned are perfectly respectable, perfectly possible. Anyway, on this third view, the Pratiharas and some of the other Rajput clans slowly emerge onto the political scene from their pastoralist background. And they needed what any newcomer needs, legitimacy. So they portrayed themselves as Kshatriyas reborn, weaving themselves into the legends of heroes such as Lakshmana, perhaps even performing rituals to make their claims seem proper. Some historians think that the ceremony up on Mount Abu actually happened, and that it was a sort of sanctification ritual, an entry for the Pratiharas and the other fireborn Rajput clans into the ranks of the Kshatriyas. This third view is often tied up with the work of historians like Chattopadhyaya, who argues that Rajputs arose because of broader economic changes, because of a, a shift from herding to farming. There was more money going around, and that meant that you could have a standing army. And there was more things fixed down which you had to defend. Around the same time, there was a big increase in the number of forts built, and a new focus on marriage alliance. And there were new ways of controlling and parceling out land handing it out in groups of around six villages or multiples of that to the kinsmen of the king. The argument goes that these changes, the economic changes, led to lots of new dynasties, all needing legitimacy, all looking for a lineage. 
There are serious problems with this third view, though. For one thing, the evidence that these economic changes happened by the time of the Pratiharas coming to power, it's pretty thin, and in some cases almost non-existent. Things just don't seem to happen in the right places and times to make this story work smoothly. So where did the Pratiharas come from? Where did the Rajputs in general come from? Which of those three answers is right, if any? Well, after several weeks of reading and thinking about it and talking about it, I've come up with an answer. I don't know. It's around 650 AD. We're in the deserts of Rajasthan, West India. A while back, the Huns swept in into India, north of here, headed for the plains of the Ganga, pecking at the great Gupta Empire until it died. And since then, other powers have tried to seize an empire for themselves, but none of them succeeded. Here, in the deserts of the West, a man named Hari Chandra sees an opportunity for himself. He's a Brahmin by birth, one of the, the priestly caste varna. He spent his youth learning the holy texts. But now his life switches course. He puts down the books and he picks up the sword. He founded a dynasty there near the edge of the desert, somewhere around where the city of Jodhpur now sits. Harichandra had a great blessing. He had a lot of kids. And he had two wives. One of them was a Brahmin woman. And the children that they had together became the Pratihara Brahmins, a line of Brahmins. The other, the queen, she was a Kshatriya woman. And together with the king, she had four sons. As the inscription puts it, each of them became drinkers of the wine, which means they became Kshatriyas. More than that, they seem to have become rulers themselves, maybe each of a different province. With these four brothers to rule, the Pratihara land started to spread out. They took land to the north. They set up a capital city only a couple of hours' walk into the desert in the city of Mandor, a city that's now often thought of as the home of the Pratiharas, which, I suppose, it was. The brothers may have split up, going in different directions to rule different provinces, or maybe to establish their own kingdoms. The youngest seems to have headed south, eventually ending up away from the dry lands of Rajasthan in modern-day Gujarat. There, he seems to have fought with some Naga tribes and carved out a little kingdom for himself, either he or his descendants, making their home in the city of Broash, the once great port city, where goods of north and central India used to float out to Rome. That trade was a distant memory now. It faded when ports to the south took prominence, and it vanished almost altogether when the Western Roman Empire disintegrated a couple of hundred years before the Pratiharas showed up. So, Brorash wasn't a place of great significance anymore. But 
It was still somewhat important. It just wasn't important enough to be the capital of an important independent kingdom. And it wasn't. Because these southern Pratiharas weren't an independent kingdom. They weren't ruling for themselves. They were always subservient to others. They weren't kings, they were Samantas, vassals. First, presumably serving the main family up in the desert, and after serving whatever bigwig held sway. Another brother, maybe the third oldest, headed out west, into Malwa. His descendants eventually took over Ujjain. They're going to be the part of the family that goes on to found an empire, the imperial Pratiharas. But that's in the future. For now, the Pratifara family, scattered a bit across Western India, carried on pretty low-key, not making huge waves, not coming very much to the attention of the emperors who wrestled one another for northern India. In fact, for several generations of Pratihara rulers, we know almost nothing of significance. During the time of Harsha, that's last season, a Chinese monk visited. Chinese monks visited almost everyone during that time, it sometimes feels. He found a young ruler of a decent-sized kingdom. According to the Chinese monk, the ruler was a devout Buddhist. That's pretty much all of the clues that we get. By around 720 AD, a king called Shilaka was on the throne in Rajasthan. He's mentioned in inscriptions as crushing a rival king and expanding his kingdom. And he does seem to have expanded it quite significantly, at least in geographic size, probably pushing the kingdom north of Jodhpur, capturing the northern part of the, of the Tar Desert that borders modern-day Pakistan. He's said to have had more power than that too, because he's said to have been at the centre of a mandala, a ring of states around his own, each of which was subservient to him. These are really fine and fragile threads from which to make a tapestry of history. We're not even sure if the different Pratiharas ruling in different places really were part of one family, let alone that they were descended from the four brothers. And there's a reason that our evidence is so thin. Because in the reign of, of Shilaka or, or his son, an invasion will sweep across the deserts that the Pratiharas ruled. Arab invaders. They'll eventually be stopped by one branch of the family, but that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. This week, I thought we'd read one of the inscriptions talking about the early history of the Pratiharas. It's as close as we're going to get to finding out what the Pratiharas thought about where they came from. We're going to read from an inscription that was found 20 miles to the north of Jodhpur. It's a little ways away from a village, near some ruins, on the side of a small building. And it was written around 918 AD, although the date's unclear. It's written by a person called Kakua, who founded a Jain temple 
And he did a bunch of other good things too. He established a market in a village, and he had pillars built in that village and in another one. But along the way to explaining this, the inscription goes through the story of the early family history of the Pratiharas. And in fact, it's almost exactly the same story that we get in another inscription back in Jodhpur. So we've got two sources on this one. And the inscription goes like this. Bow to the Lord of the Jinnas, who is the path to heaven and beatitude, the God who is the first cause of all things, the destroyer of every sin, the supreme preceptor, the glorious Lakshmana, the ornament of the Ragus was Rama's doorkeeper. Hence, the Pratihara clan has attained here to eminence. There was a Brahmin named Harichandra. His wife was Bhadra of the Kshatriya caste. To them, a valiant son was born named Rajila. To him again, Narabhata was born. And to him, Nagabhata. His son was Tata and his son Yashuvardhana. To him Chandaka was born, and to him Shiluka, and his son was Jota, and his the generous Biluka. Biluka's son was Kaka, highly esteemed for his noble qualities, and to him was born from Durlabhadevi, Kakuka. His smile is like a slightly opening flower bud. His speech is sweet, his glance benign, his meekness not timid, his anger slight, his friendship firm. He never has spoken or smiled or acted or looked or remembered a thing or stood still or roamed about without benefiting mankind. Like a mother, he constantly has kept in comfort all the people in his dominion, the poor and the prosperous, the lowest as well as the highest. And never has he, departing from that which was right through favour, affection, envy or greed, made the slightest difference between the parties in any transaction. Acting on the advice of the best of the twice-born, he has pleased everybody, and has, free from passion, also inflicted punishment on the wicked. Even to citizens possessed of abundance of wealth, he has assigned more than his reverence, a lakh and a hundred, and as much as was suitable. Though decorated, with the freshness of youth and with beauty, and full of the sentiment of love, he has never behaved to people so as to incur the reproach of men without modesty. To children, like a father, to young men, like a friend, and to the aged, like a son, he, by such good conduct of his, has constantly fostered everybody. Ever civil, showing respect and praising excellence, and speaking pleasantly, he's given plenty of wealth to those attached to him. By his excellent behaviour and qualities, he has won the love of the people in Marmada, Vala, Tamani and Gujarat. He has taken away the herds of cattle and has afterwards boldly destroyed by fire the villages on the hill of the inaccessible Vatananaka district. But this land he has made fragrant with the leaves of blue lotuses and pleasant with groups of mango and maduka trees and has covered it with the leaves of excellent sugarcane. And when 900 years were increased, by the 18th in Chaitra, when the moon's nakshatra was on Hasta on Wednesday, the second lunar day of the bright half, the illustrious Kakuka 
for the increase of his fame, founded a market fit for traders, crowded with Brahmins, soldiers and merchants, at the village of Rohisenakupa. He has erected, like heaps of his renown, the two pillars here, one at Madhudora and other, another at the village of Rohinasakupa. This illustrious Kakuka piously is caused to be built this imperishable temple of the god Jinnah, which destroys sin and creates happiness. And he has entrusted this temple to the community, presided over by the ascetics Jambava and Amraka, and the merchant Bakuta, in the gacha of the holy Daneswara. So that's it for this week. Thank you very much indeed with sticking with me to the end. I hope you enjoyed it. Maybe got to hear a different side of things. Hopefully I stuck pretty close to mainstream Indian historians, as close as I could, but I'm sure mistakes will come to light in my inbox pretty soon. The website has been updated, so please go check it out if you're interested in more details about an episode. The full back catalogue is there, series by series. And there's some reading too for each topic in the series. I try to keep the readings fairly brief. I mean, I'd like to say I put the most informative and accurate of the readings up there, but really, it's just as often the readings that I just like the most. Please feel free to email me if you'd like readings on any other topic. I'll do my best. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snail Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. The details for that are up on the website, even the new version. Next week, we're back with the invasion of the Arabs. Until then, have a great week and take care.